Hi, I'm Shannon Rice, the podcast producer here at C-SPAN. And this week on the Lectures in History podcast, a discussion about President Lyndon Johnson's Great Society program. George Washington University lecturer Bell Julian Clement examines the way American poverty policy and the Great Society program sought to provide economic security to the poorest Americans. Sit tight. Class starts right after this. This course, as you know, examines the development of the U.S. welfare state, the way Americans have gone about making social provision for themselves. Social provision includes the range of programs aimed at reducing risk or enhancing quality of life. As you know, our focus has been on the specific issue of poor relief, because relief of poverty seems to present the American system with its most intractable, intractable problem. I'm I'm going to depart from our usual format here a little bit. I'm going to do a fair amount of reading um, this afternoon because I'm concerned about covering all the material that we have to cover. Over the course of our exploration of the construction of the American welfare state, uh, we've encountered several different persistent themes. Among these are the idea that uh, in the United States... Uh, Social provision is divided between public and private institutions. Uh, Public uh, provides, government provides welfare programming. The public shapes welfare programming through the tax system. On the private end, as we've discussed, private entities provide charity, philanthropy, and importantly, American employers provide the bulk of social welfare benefits. Another theme is the experimentation with institutional forms. We've worked our way through outdoor relief, uh, the idea that impoverished families are supported by payments in cash or kind and remain in their own homes. Indoor relief, uh, Dickensian poor houses and the like. Uh, The American system has tended to accommodate both forms simultaneously constantly arguing back and forth uh, about which one is preferable or, or, or at least least harmful. A third consideration is uh, for the American system is the importance, the pivotal role of relief systems as mechanisms for managing workforce. I think normally we think of poor relief as necessarily being aimed at relieving poverty. But in fact, uh, at the level of policymaking, poor relief is often about making sure that employers have access to a stable workforce. And that concern um, is a shaping factor throughout the policies that we have looked at. A fourth uh, theme has been the tension in all of these iterations between American commitment to compassion, the American idea that we are responsible for one another, and that communities will take care of vulnerable people within them. That, um, that commitment is constantly at war with a commitment to instilling discipline, a commitment to work, uh, to creating citizens who are capable of being self-sufficient and establishing independence. Those, those two pieces, compassion on the one hand, and commitment to workforce discipline seem constantly to be at war with one another. A corollary of that, because we we operate these programs with warring values underlying them, it's also true that we cannot completely make up our minds about what our goal for any of these programs is. 
Uh, are we attempting to facilitate a stable workforce in a co- complicated capitalist society? If so, certain policy moves are presumably in order. Or are we trying to rid ourselves of, policy, of poverty uh, to express compassion? Which, what, what are we trying to attempt here? Today, uh, last, last week, we left off with uh, examination of the Social Security, Social Security Act of 1935, the New Deal legislation that laid the foundation for American social provision and created the framework in which social provision operates to this day. In today's session, we're going to take up the great society phase of the development of American poor relief and poverty policy. The Great Society is a moniker for the ambitious domestic program launched by the Johnson administration in 1964. Lyndon Johnson's ambitions for remaking American life were expansive, not to say bottomless. We are interested here in what was for him a core element of his program, of his Great Society program, that is the war on poverty. That war operated on multiple fronts. During his tenure, Congress passed important landmark legislation providing for federal support of public education, for expanded job training, for access for for renewed access to health care. This includes the creation of the Medicare and Medicaid programs, Uh, a recommitment to publicly subsidized housing. This included the creation of the Department of Housing and Urban Development and a commitment also to new approaches to urban development, including the community action programs that were part uh, of the the War on Poverty legislation. Each of these uh, elements uh, was a front in the War on Poverty. But within this comprehensive attack on poverty, what we're going to be scrutinizing here today and what you are reading about in the Gareth Davies material Uh, is the Economic Opportunity Act of 1964. This is the act that created the war on poverty. And just for, we'll we'll go through a little bit of its operation, but just to lay out here its structure so you know, uh, the act was comprised of five titles, uh, each of them uh, attacking poverty uh, on a different front. So we have uh, job training in the Job Corps and work experience in Titles One and Five. We have uh, different sorts of business and economic assistance in Titles Three and Four, including assistance to impoverished rural communities who loom larger. We, we tend to forget poverty is not strictly an urban phenomenon in the United States, as, as we learned in looking at what the New Deal uh, researchers uncovered when they went to the Dakotas uh, in the 1930s. The, the key piece, the most dynamic element of the Economic Opportunity Act turns out to have been uh, the community action program created by Title II, and we will discuss that further. Community, community action, in brief, uh, took the view that poverty could only be addressed effectively through comprehensive strategies that included the elements that are touched on in these other titles. A strategy to attack attack poverty had to think about job training, education, housing, uh, as well as where people were were getting income from. 
The Community Action Title also took the position that the only way that kind of planning could get done effectively is if the people who were going to be subject to the plan were involved in the planning. So the Community Action Program set up a system whereby the federal government would make direct funding to grassroots groups around the country to plan and then to monitor the implementation of community-wide anti-poverty plans. This proved to be um, dynamic, productive, and highly controversial, as we'll see. Note that uh, the uh, Economic Opportunity Act did not uh, address uh, poor relief directly. It did not uh, change, it did not provide for income assistance. On Thursday, we will be talking, uh, using the quadrennial readings, about the AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, and how the Johnson administration uh, dealt with that program during, during Johnson's tenure. Um, the, in brief, uh, AFDC payments were significantly raised under Johnson, and other programs were instituted. For example, in 1964, formalization of the food stamp program. But we, we know today is WIC. So that's the layout. We're, we're working through uh, this, the, the archae, we're, we're, we're digging through the, the archaeology, the, the evolution um, of the American system, starting in the cellar, working our way up. We've laid the ground floor foundation with the New Deal. We're now working on the Great Society material. And within the Great Society, we're dealing today with the Economic Opportunity Act. On Thursday, we'll be dealing with AFDC in in greater depth. So why, in general, or or for our project, does this topic matter? What we're trying to do here is to identify the contributions that Great Society policymaking made to the development of the American system of social provision. And the significance of the Great Society effort is as a window into the dynamics of the American struggle with poverty and how poverty should be addressed. As with all phases of the development of American social welfare policy, the Great Society necessarily built on the institutional architecture erected by past attempts. Great Society builds on New Deal. New New Deal builds on mother's pensions. Mother's pensions build on Civil War pensions and on and on. Equally, the Great Society grappled with Americans' endemic ambivalence concerning social provision. We hope to build a compassionate society, but we also pride ourselves on our independence and self-sufficiency and seek to support those qualities through our ethics of work and personal responsibility. So the question again is, how is policy to be designed to meet that first objective, compassion, while respecting the second, discipline and independence? In addressing these challenges, the Great Society's war on poverty was unique in several ways. And you see here innovations with regard to goals, with regard to approaches, with regard to relation to social movements. So what am I speaking about here? With regard to goals, the war on poverty expressed significantly larger aspirations concerning poverty and enhancement of American quality of life than any previous reform phase. It also envisioned a substantially expanded role for government in achieving those goals. Johnson asked Americans to imagine a nation where poverty had been ended 
by and through the efforts of the people working through their government. These were new ideas. How about policy approaches? Um, Again, I'm referring here in particular to the Community Action Program. The war on poverty thus recognized the systemic nature of poverty, something that we've been waiting for policymakers to do throughout our readings, right? So here we're finally seeing Americans saying, yes, poverty is maybe not simply about individual uh, failings. Maybe there's something bigger going on. Recognizing the systemic nature of poverty, the war on poverty sought to address it. Thus, the Community Action Program, created by the Economic Opportunity Act, drew together multiple anti-poverty initiatives addressing housing, education, workforce development, urban planning, which previously operated in their separate silos. Its strategy was to attack poverty in the specific communities where it predominated. It folded anti-poverty initiatives into one comprehensive attack on the conditions of poverty and engaged residents of impoverished communities in planning and implementing it. So so one aspect that you want to pick up here is that for the uh, War on Poverty program, poverty was linked to place. Poverty was linked to city neighborhoods or, or rural communities in which it occurred. And the strategy for attacking poverty thus dealt with particular places and particular groups of planners. Impact of social movements. Um, I, I hope that you're, well, you may be seeing in the Davies reading that rather differently from the phases of uh, welfare policy development that we've looked at thus far, in the case of the Great Society, the war on poverty was uniquely influenced by grassroots pressure. The war was launched amidst the tumult of the 60s. In fact, it contributed to heightening that tumult. Great society initiatives helped amplify voices previously sidelined in American political discourse, importantly those of African Americans, women, and poor people themselves. In the pressures of a volatile atmosphere in the 60s, policymakers heard and responded to these voices. Ultimately, um, the to me, the war on poverty is, is interesting because it so directly um, tests American values. In, in the war on poverty, we see a direct confrontation between the, these values of compassion and discipline that, that I've been presenting to you. The war on poverty it, thus tested the potency of the American dream. The American dream being the idea of America as a place of opportunity for all. The war on poverty tested that by testing whether enlightened policy could extend that opportunity to all Americans. The war on poverty uh, was confronted with and grappled directly with the possibility that modern America's capitalist economy could not be restructured to provide for all and that jury-rigged fixes like the dole would be necessary to lift the American poor from poverty. The dole meaning uh, we give up, we're not going to try to fix this in any kind of systematic way, we will just write checks. That's the best we can do. Uh, war on policy, war on poverty policymakers retained the doubt that a dole or any kind of forced redistribution could achieve the end of poverty or that the attempt would not fatally undermine other aspects of the polity that Americans deem essential specifically the hope of becoming a nation of independent and self-sufficient equals. So let's lay out the background um, of the uh, Economic Opportunity Act attempt. 
And bear with me, I'm going to go through some background pieces uh, just to get uh, those pieces laid out, and then we will get to the act itself. Okay, so, so background, what is that all about? Great Society Interventions into American Poverty, built on existing structures for provision of relief and operated within a pre-existing framework of values relating to compassion, community, and work. With regard to institutional structures, again, uh, as you saw in particular in the New Deal materials, an issue for uh, welfare provision at the, at the national level was, were programs to be structured as insurance or structured as assistance? Insurance programs like Social Security uh, were those in which benefits were based in part on contributions paid in by beneficiaries. And these programs were more respected than assistance programs, programs like Aid to Families with Dependent Children, AFDC, which operated as a public grant or dole to the needy. Second set of distinctions are national or state. These, these two tend to track one another. Social Security, as a national program administered by the federal government, provided a more stable stream of benefits and one that was consistent across regions, uh, more stable than state-administered programs like, for example, unemployment compensation or aid to families with dependent children. So the, there's a clear hierarchy here, and uh, the, you're, you're always safer if you're on the insurance side of the equation and if you're on the national side of the equation. Insurance and national means, for example, what we know as Social Security, those monthly checks to older people. Um, AFDC is both assistance, weaker, and state-controlled, weaker again, leaving people more vulnerable. So this, this is the institutional set of structures that um, the war on poverty was going to have to figure out a, uh, how, to, how to build on. Again... Um, the war on poverty has to engage these values that we've been talking about. And I guess what I'm arguing here is that the Johnson program felt that just maybe it had solved this problem, just maybe it had come up with a way to meld our commitment to compassion, our, the American commitment to compassion for those among us who are in need, with the American commitment to independence, self-sufficiency, uh, go-getterism. And the way this was going to operate was by creating a program that, that relied on the health of the American economy and had faith that that economy could provide for everybody if only access could be opened up. The, the program took as its task the opening up. It recognized that the economy was not open to all and took as its task the opening up of the economy. Um, if that could work then maybe Americans could both demonstrate compassion while sticking to their rock-ribbed um, commitment to economic independence. So we wanna, I want to look uh, with you at a couple of uh, pieces, a couple of back, background pieces that fed in to um, shaping the program. I think as we've, as we've gone through these programs, uh, we've been trying to establish in each phase of American development what the historical context of program development has been, what kinds of values or kinds of, and kinds of social thinking each phase of the program drew on 
So let's, let's try to do that here for the war on poverty. I want to raise some issues about contemporary ideologies, uh, some of the contemporary experiments going on uh, in the, the realm of, of poverty policy uh, prior to the Economic Opportunity Act. And then we need to mention a couple of things about Lyndon Johnson, uh, who was without a doubt a factor uh, in, this, in this development. So starting with ideology, um, I have three uh, notables, uh, notable public intellectuals uh, or uh, criers in the wilderness, you you take your pick, to present to you. Uh, Starting with uh, John Kenneth Galbraith, uh, who in 1958 published The Affluent Society. Um, Galbraith was an economist uh, he was uh, part of the court of Camelot with the Kennedy administration. He remained as an advisor to Johnson. Uh, he is a, was a tremendously urbane, witty, gracious uh, public intellectual. He published often. And in the case of um, the affluent society, he was indicting uh, Americans uh, we are now uh, in 18, 1958. We're moving toward the end of the 50s. Uh, we are mired in Eisenhower stability. We are uh, feeling our wealth uh, as a society. We are still sitting on top of the world d- diplomatically. We still view ourselves as the nation that won um, the Second World War. We're not, we haven't discussed that yet with the Russians. And Galbraith says, look around. What is it that you are actually getting? And he, he makes this, uh, he levels this charge. He says, take a typical American family um, out for a, week, uh, a weekend outing. The family which takes its mauve and cerise air-conditioned, power-steered, and power-braked automobile out for a tour passes through cities that are badly paved, made hideous by litter, blighted buildings, billboards, and posts for wires that should long since have been put underground. They pass on into a countryside that has been rendered largely invisible by commercial art. They picnic on exquisitely packaged foods from a portable icebox by a polluted stream and go on to spend the night at a park which is a a menace to public health and morals. Just before dozing off on an air mattress beneath a nylon tent amid the stench of decaying refuse, they may reflect vaguely on the curious unevenness of their blessings. Is this, indeed, the American genius? Galbraith's point was that throughout the, in the post-war era, what Americans had been doing is, uh, at an accelerated rates, feathering their private nests and feeling their private affluence. All well and good. But he said, look around. We are starving the public sector. And then what do you have left? What you have left is an expensive car in which you venture out in a, in a society, into a society in ruins. He called this uh, private opulence and public squalor. And he challenged Americans to think more systematically about how their wealth might better be used. Great, Uncle Sam, you're rolling in dough. All you get out of it are aluminum fins on your cars and uh, air conditioning in your homes. Isn't there something more than that that you would like to achieve as a society? Second indictment, Harry Caudill, 
uh, night comes to the Cumberlands. Uh, Cottle was a, uh, he's a Kentuckian. He was an historian. He was a, a Kentucky state legislator. He was a folklorist. He was an environmental activist. And he wrote night to, to dam, and he effectively dammed the big coal operators who were despoiling uh, both the land and the people of Appalachia. Um, his efforts, um, this book, Night Comes to the Cumberlands, uh, did get public notice. It was promoted by a uh, columnist in the New York Times, uh, Homer Biggert, uh, and lays claim to having spurred the uh, Kennedy effort, which Johnson picked up and expanded um, for Appalachian uh, redevelopment. A third example, uh, Knight Comes to the Cumberlands was uh, published in 62. Uh, Michael Harrington, The Other American, uh, also 1962. Harrington uh, was a, um, one of Dorothea Day's uh, Catholic workers. He was for many years the editor of the, the uh, publication, The Catholic Worker. He was a Catholic. Uh, he became a socialist. He was a journalist. He was an activist. Um, his book, uh, The Other America, as I say, published in 62, asserted that as many as a quarter of Americans were living in poverty. So an aspect of the, the affluent society problem that Galbraith was pointing out was not only degradation of the environment and city landscapes, but it was also degradation of the people. Um, Harrington used the book to show how American society was structured in ways that effectively hid the poor from more affluent people. This uh, book was uh, reviewed uh, in The New Yorker uh, by the um, public, intellectual, uh, named, uh, public intellectual named Dwight MacDonald. It caught the attention of the Kennedy administration and Kennedy. And just as Night Comes to the Cumberlands is a basis for the creation of the Appalachian Redevelopment Authority, this book, The Other America, was clearly a spur to creating the program that became the War on Poverty. How about experiments? Uh, you have ideology. Uh, these, these are three authors that are, maybe they're not creating the issue, but it's noteworthy that, that each of these three books caught public attention. They were hitting on something that American people apparently were worried about and were receptive to. So the other thing that we want to look at is uh, contemporary experiments. And uh, wanted to raise three of these with you. Um, question of juvenile delinquency, a question of uh, urban development, and actually a little bit more juvenile delinquency in there. So starting out with uh, the problem of juvenile delinquency, which in the 50s and 60s is what... Americans, that was the term that Americans used, uh, knew to use for a new development that people were perceiving, which was youth were getting out of hand. There was a lot of new music, which was disturbing. Um, there was a lot of new uh, running around town, um, disrespect for elders, disrespect for, the, for institutions of education and the like, and at times out and out petty crime gang gang delinquency. So this all goes under the moniker juvenile delinquency. And if you've ever seen uh, West Side Story, you, you are familiar with one of the contemporary comments on that, courtesy of Officer Crumkey. 
So this example uh, has to do with mobilization for youth and the efforts of two sociologists, Lloyd Olin and Richard Cloward, who at this time, I believe, were both at Columbia University. And I think I, think I have mentioned this to you before. Um, Olin and Cloward helped found an organization on the Lower East Side in New York called Mobilization for Youth. They wanted to work with these young people, young men, who were being classified as juvenile delinquents. The charge against juvenile delinquents is that they're petty criminals. And Olin's insight, uh, and this was published in Delinquency and Opportunity, uh, 1960, Olin's insight was, no, these, these, these boys are not different from any other American boy. They're doing exactly what we encourage all American boys to do, to be ambitious, to look for a way up, to enlarge your, uh, your scope. The difference is the boys on the Lower East Side don't have access to any kind of the opportunities that we as a society approve of. They're not going to go to a four-year college. They don't have access to job training. So the solution is maybe not to try to fix the kid. The kid is fine. The solution is opportunity ladders. These boys are climbing opportunity ladders, but the wrong opportunity ladders. If we want to change this, then what we have to do is provide different ladders. Um, said Olin, the boy who joins a gang isn't in a rut. He has aspirations, but no place to go with them. This uh, set of insights became an important chunk of the theory around which the war on poverty was built. This is, a, this is kind of a core piece of the community action program. What we need to do here, we don't, we're not about fixing individual people. They don't need it. We're, we're about creating opportunity ladders. A second example is what the, uh, the Ford Foundation was up to, the Gray Areas Program. Uh, this goes to this, this question of comprehensiveness, the, uh, the insight that if you want to address poverty, you can't go person by person or even program by program. You have to look at poverty as something that occurs within a community and figure out how to address various aspects of that poverty with, within that community. Um, it's good to provide job training, but job training is not going to get you there if everyone is living in um, impossible housing, um, if people don't have decent schools that they can send their eight-year-olds to and the like. Um, the uh, Gray Areas Program targeted improvements to physical and social infrastructure and to service delivery systems in impoverished urban neighborhoods. Uh, it was an approach to place-based reform. Uh, these previously had typically been scattershot, separate uh, efforts aimed, you know, one at education, one at employment, one at health. Uh, what the gray areas did, um, under uh, Paul Ildesacker was the, uh, the director who, who managed this, um, the gray areas insight was we have to combine uh, those separate initiatives into a comprehensive area-wide attempt. The gray areas also did something that was picked up later by the Community Action Program, which is that it involved residents in creating these programs. Instead of marching in um, and saying to people, we have a plan, it's going to be good for you, they tried with some success 
to move in communities and, and ask people what needs to be done here. How can we help? It was a new approach. A third um, effort, which I mentioned both because it involves us here in D.C. and because it was particularly close to uh, the Kennedy and Johnson administration, was the uh, President's, Kennedy, President Kennedy's commission, excuse me, Committee on Juvenile Delinquency. This was headed uh, by uh, Robert Kennedy, at that time uh, the Attorney General of the United States, and it involved, in effect, an attempt to start a, a project similar to a gray areas program here in D.C. in the Cardozo, what was then called the Cardozo neighborhood. Today we would call it Columbia Heights and Mount Pleasant. Uh, Robert Kennedy uh, spearheaded that, uh, managed that, and this is important uh, in particular because it meant that Kennedy troubled himself to get some firsthand views of both conditions in impoverished urban neighborhoods and in what it took to address conditions in those neighborhoods. So we have a set of new ideological insights, so to say, in Caudill and uh, Galbraith and Harrington. We have these kind of experimental feelers out. We'll try gray areas. We'll try ladders to opportunity for, ju for so-called juvenile delinquents. Um, the other piece that I want to put on the table here is Johnson himself. Lyndon Johnson's character was, to say the least, complex, encompassing both ferocious ambition and deep reservoirs of compassion traits that at times worked in tandem and at times not. His chief interest on entering the presidency was in domestic reform, and his concept of what reform required was shaped by his Texas upbringing. So what was that? Uh, Johnson was born in Hill Country. Um, this is farm, farmland uh, just to the west of, uh, of Austin. He tended to over-dramatize the extent of his childhood poverty. He, he, uh, he worked that angle pretty hard. But in truth, he did come up in a family. His father, Sam, here, was never able to establish himself professionally in any kind of secure way. The, the family was constantly rocked by financial crisis. Uh, his mother, Rebecca, was uh, the pillar in all this. I expect that she was at times rather annoying. But she had higher aspirations for her husband and for her family and especially for her oldest son, Lyndon. Uh, bottom line, uh, Johnson from an early age knew about economic struggle, if not flat-out wolf-at-the-door poverty, then about what it meant to, to be dismissed as, uh, as, an, as, as a failure, dismissed as an economic failure, looked look down upon. Um, an important piece of the Johnson background is his time at Catula. Uh, Catula, uh, this was one of Johnson's first jobs. It was during a year that he took away from college uh, and uh, during which he served as a school teacher in the tiny Texas town of Catula. Uh, this became a touchstone of his later career. His students uh, were impoverished young Mexican-Americans, and Johnson did all that he could for them. And now I'm going to try to read this quote. Let's see if I can even get through it. 
uh, years later, standing in the well of the House, introducing the War on Poverty Plans to a joint session of Congress, Johnson referred uh, to this um, experience of his. This, uh, this was the uh, address of March 15, 1965, um, in which uh, Johnson laid out the program. He said, my first job after college was as a teacher in Catula, Texas, a small Mexican-American school. Few of them could speak English, and they often came to class without breakfast, hungry. They knew, even in their youth, the pain of prejudice. They never seemed to know why people disliked them, but they knew it was so. I saw it in their eyes. I often walked home wishing there was more that I could do. You never forget what poverty and hatred can do when you see its scars on the hopeful face of a young child. I never thought then, in 1928, that I would be standing here in 1965, that I might have the chance to help the sons and daughters of those students and people like them all over the country. But now I do have that chance, and I'll let you in on a secret. I mean to use it. Um, the biographers Evans and Novak report that on the next day, uh, Johnson was in his office and a friend complimented him on his speech and asked who wrote it. And the report is that Johnson pulled from his desk this picture and said, they did. A third uh, factor in the upbringing that is perhaps immediately relevant is uh, Johnson's time as the head of the uh, New Deal National Youth Administration of Texas branch. Uh, the, the National Youth Administration was charged with, uh, this is a New Deal program. Uh, the idea was to try to uh, find employment for American young people uh, particularly with the object of keeping them somehow in school. Um, Johnson was a, from, from, the, from the very first, from, uh, from his election in November of 1932, Johnson was a fan of FDR. Uh, this, this picture here, uh, young Johnson meeting FDR in, uh, in a, an FDR campaign swing through Texas, uh, is captures some of that. It's also notable because you can find other versions of this photo that Johnson used in campaign literature in which the guy in the middle, who I think is the governor of Texas, has been airbrushed out. He's gone. But this is the original shot. And the Johnson's NYA experience was um, noteworthy. Uh, years later... Uh, Robert Weaver, who Johnson nominated to become the first secretary of the ha Department of Housing and Urban Development, which and uh, Weaver was um, uh, approved by the Senate, making Weaver the first African-American member of the cabinet. This is in 1965. And during his confirmation hearings, uh, Weaver is before the Senate and somebody asks him, well, so... What, what draws you to work for this guy, Johnson? Um, 
He's a Southerner. We always understood that he was a pretty conservative Southerner. And uh, we were reported uh, with regard to the um, National Youth Administration, quote, I soon heard about this guy down in Texas who was shocking some people up on the Hill because he thought that the National Youth Administration benefits ought to go to poor folks. To make matters worse, he was giving a hell of a lot of this money to Mexican-Americans and Negroes. So, like Catula, the NYA experience solidified Johnson's belief in education as an essential American opportunity ladder. In addition, it brought to him a lifelong belief in the creative possibilities of democratic government. Johnson was, from his arrival in Washington as his congressional aide in the early 1930s, an admirer of Franklin Roosevelt and a fully committed supporter of the New Deal. He learned from his NYA experience that American government could intervene effectively to improve American lives. Okay, so we've got ideology, we've got experimentation, we've got the personality, the quite explosive and dynamic personality of the president. So let's try to figure out its development here. So political context. The November 22nd, 1963 assassination of John Kennedy martyred the new frontier hopes of a generation of Americans. Coming into office in the wake of the tragedy, Johnson channeled the nation's grief into the political consensus necessary to achieve key elements of his predecessor's legislative agenda. It's, uh, it's a, it, it was a performance, a um, performance gives the wrong impression. He, Johnson, in that moment of great national trauma, handled himself with great skill. Um, it is hard to reproduce how traumatic the loss of Kennedy under those circumstances was for the nation. Kennedy had been the bright hope. Um, Richard Nixon, I think, captured it best. Nixon said, <laughs> it's so characteristic. It, it's, it's a good comment on Kennedy, and it reveals something, I think, deeply true about Nixon. Nixon said, uh, Americans look at Kennedy, and they see what they want to be. They look at me, and they see what they are. Um, Many hopes were attached to Kennedy, and uh, Johnson found a way to pick up the mantle. The Kennedy administration had been planning an anti-poverty program in the months prior to the president's death. Kennedy was determined to pass a major tax cut in order to fulfill his campaign promise to, quote, get the economy moving again um, after the Eisenhower doldrums, and he wanted to balance this gift to the nation's affluent classes with something for the poor. Johnson immediately seized on the program for development. In his first State of the uh, Union address to Congress, here we go. Johnson understood that he could ask the American public to think about what Kennedy had meant to them and then ask them to um, honor Kennedy and the Kennedy legacy by moving rapidly on the Kennedy program, which up until that time, during the three years of the Kennedy administration, had been stalled in the Congress. The, the magic here is that, as we know, Johnson, Robert Cairo calls him the master of the Senate. 
Johnson's key skill set was in legislation. Uh, so this, this is a person coming into office who is both determined, based on his own background, to promote a policy of, of poverty policy reform, and someone who's got a particular set of skills that might enable him to do that. So here is how, uh, in this, this is the first State of the Union address. Uh, he's been in office um, seven weeks, and he says to the Congress, uh, in laying out his program going forward, Unfortunately, many Americans live on the outskirts of hope, some because of their poverty and some because of their color, and all too many because of both. Our task is to help replace their despair with opportunity. And here he goes. This administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. I urge this Congress and all Americans to join with me in that effort. Our chief weapons in a more pinpointed attack will be better schools and better health and better homes and better training and better job opportunities to help more Americans, especially young Americans, escape from the squalor and misery and unemployment roles where other citizens help to carry them. Um, so a, a couple of things that you, you know, warning lights kind of go off. Is it wise to declare unconditional war on something like poverty? Uh, will you know when you have won? Have you set up a metric for that? Is it conceivable that you will have won? If not, are you maybe immediately overpromising? And then, of course, you see this characteristic, and this is something that is folded into the, um, the Economic Opportunity Act, this all-points attack. We're not, we're not just going to worry about the children. Uh, we're going to worry about education and job training and housing and health, and on and on it goes. So the gauntlet has been laid down, and it's been laid down at a propitious moment. In January of 1964, Americans are willing to say, yes, yes, we can still do this. We can, we can honor uh, the memory of our lost leader in this way. It is right that we should do this charge. So uh, several things had to happen first. Yep. The first order of business in the winter of 63-64 was to create a federal budget that could accommodate the tax cut uh, that uh, LBJ intended to make while staying below the $100 billion mark. Kennedy, remember, had uh, the, the reason that war and poverty thinking had got going was that Kennedy had decided that to get the economy moving again, a tax cut was going to be necessary. Okay, so the, the barons in Congress, the uh, mostly Southern and conservative Democrats who controlled all the committees in Congress said, we'll go along with you on this only only if you show some uh, budget discipline and, and keep this under the magnificent sum of $100 billion. Uh, Johnson was able to pull that off. Uh, having uh, achieved an acceptable budget, he was then able to pass the tax cut. And this actually, this $11 billion tax cut, uh, this is the Revenue Act of 1964, in fact plays largely, although in the background of our story, it is arguably responsible for the great spurt in um, economic growth and the feeling of prosperity that Americans enjoyed during the balance of the 60s, um, only cut short by the um, increasing pressure of uh, the Vietnam War. Having 
passed those two measures, Johnson then did send his Economic Opportunity Act to Congress. He described it, he, he said of the, of the act, we have never lost sight of our goal, an America in which every citizen shares all the opportunities of his society, in which every man has a chance to advance his welfare to the limit of his capacities. Notice what's being stressed here. This is not a relief, it's not a dole, it is opportunity. We, we have faith in the American economy and our strategy is to restructure that economy to let everybody in. Johnson, in sending the bill to Congress, challenged Congress. Today, for the first time in our history, we have the power to strike away the barriers to full participation in our society. Having the power, we have the duty. So, again, the gauntlet is laid down. The Again, a reminder, the Economic Opportunity Act is part of the larger Great Society program. The, this is important for the Economic Opportunity Act because you want to remember uh, Title II, the Community Action Program. What was the Community Action Program going to do? The idea was that people on the ground were going to be able to look out into this vast array of new federal programs and from, from their position on the ground, knowing what their communities needed, we're going to be able to pick and choose from among these programs to assemble a plan that would address their, be tailored to the particular needs of their communities. Uh, these, this list here should give you, um, I hope, some idea of the, this tidal wave of new policy, of, of reform-minded policy and legislation that the Johnson team was pushing through Congress at this time. This was uh, particularly in 1964. This is riding in particularly on the Kennedy legacy. Uh, by the time you get to 1965, it is riding on the huge um, electoral majorities, Democratic majorities in both House and Senate that uh, Johnson was able to ring up. Uh, he has two-to-one majorities in both House and Senate. The community action planners were going to address poverty by pulling from among the opportunities that were offered by this roster of new legislation. So what happened? In thinking about uh, the Economic Opportunity Act, uh, the useful thing is to think about, well, in what, in what ways is this, in what way, if any, is this an innovation different from the way Americans have always done poverty policy? Does this contribute something new to our mix, um, something that either we should discard rapidly or something that we should pick up and integrate moving forward? So, starting with, well, what were the, what were the innovations? The first was a comprehensive assault. Again, the nothing in that roster of programs that we just looked at. There's there's nothing here that's radically new in and of itself. 
job training, improvements to housing, improvements to education, these, for the most part, had been tried before. Uh, what is new here is the idea that if we're going to make this work, we have to be serious about it. We, we do have to look at this as an effort not to solve this one-off problem over here and that one-off problem over there, but rather to put together a package, the result of which will in fact be a restructuring of the economic conditions in which American uh, communities are surviving. So comprehensive is one. Uh, second is this bit this business of citizen engagement. This is a little dicey. Will citizen engagement work? Do you really mean to tell me that you're going to call my neighbor, Mrs. Williams, up and invite her down to the community center and ask her to to help us plan a new new bus routes or new after-school programs? Is that really what Mrs. Williams is best at? Is that what, what do we want, Mrs. Williams? What kind of input do we really want from Mrs. Williams. And this is, that's an issue that is going to dog this program throughout its, throughout its tenure. Nonetheless, arguably a step forward. Ha, huh, nothing we have done has worked all that well so far. Maybe it would be good to ask the people who are experiencing these conditions how they think things ought to be altered. And then a third innovation um, is the uh, the, the outspokenness of the commitment uh, to opportunity. This, this uh, commitment to opportunity reflected, reflected a bedrock faith in the robustness of the American economy, its ability to make room for all. This position also acknowledged the real barriers presented by lack of resources and, for some of the American poor, racial discrimination. But it nonetheless drew the conclusion that all that was needed to end poverty was to connect people who were poor with real opportunities. This commitment to opportunity helped sell the EOA program. Uh, most Americans, we've, we've come across this problem in earlier phases. Um, an effective re- welfare reform has got to be acceptable to the majority of Americans, meaning it's going to have to find a way of fitting into uh, generally accepted social values. This commitment to opportunity helped sell the EOA program. Most Americans resisted the idea of handouts, so-called, to the poor. They viewed citizens' rights as involving fulfillment of citizens' responsibilities, in this case, the responsibility to be independent, to provide for one's own subsistence. To assert that it might be impossible for some to achieve independence except in a few specific categories of age or disability, was to cast doubt on the American dream itself, the dream that in America all persons could attain self-sufficiency and independence. So those are the innovations. What were the challenges for this program? Okay, number one, federal system friction. And this, this was... Vivid at the time, and it's kind of fun. Um, imagine how, if you, if you know anything about Mayor Daley in Chicago, imagine how Mayor Daley felt when he got the news that the federal government was taking money that in past years probably would have come to the city government of Chicago, i.e. to Mayor Daley himself, and was instead sending it to a, some grassroots organization on the south side. Out of Mayor Daley's control, 
de- depriving city coffers of this money in order to fund this, in his view, uh, radical, scrappy group on the south side that was only going to make trouble for him. Across the country, the EOA created friction within the federal system because it did just that. It went around state and local governments and provided funding directly to grassroots organizations. Um, Worse, as the 60s heated up and levels of violence in the cities increased, the uh, community action programs were often, um, sometimes rightly, often wrongly, associated with support for increased militancy and even at times for support for violence. So this was, um, is this a success or failure? The the purpose of the EOA was to shake up the existing system. It did that, but perhaps it was so effective on that score that it made it itself unsustainable. A second uh, challenge coming from a little bit of a different direction was Uh, Failure and expense. Uh, Okay, President Johnson, we have passed your policy. We've passed your war on poverty. You declared unconditional war. We've put money into this. We've been working on this for 18 months. And we look around and we notice, you know, there's, there's still poverty everywhere. Not only is there still poverty everywhere, but it's getting more expensive to write checks to it. Uh, In this period, the Johnson administration is uh, experiencing an enlargement of the AFDC roles. It is also, through Social Security amendments, increasing benefits uh, to AFDC recipients. So there's a rising price tag, and gosh darn it, you haven't accomplished what you told us you were going to accomplish. Now, the logical question here is, who thinks you're going to solve poverty in 18 months, right? But uh, the 60s are a tense time And perhaps it was not illegitimate for people who had supported the act to be saying to the administration, look, you've got to give us some concrete sign of progress or we cannot continue selling this to the folks back home. What you're seeing here is kind of the opening wedge that is going to undermine support for this approach um, in the Congress. And then the third piece is social movement uh, demand, social movement impacts. Um, as I said at, at the top, one of the uh, unique aspects of this phase of American social policy development is the degree to which social movements were prominent and I think it's fair to say influential in shaping uh, poverty outcomes. So let's look at those. We want to look, uh, we're going to look in particular at the civil rights movement, the black power movement, and the welfare rights, women's rights um, contributions here. The, the civil rights movement is uh, evolving rapidly in this moment. But I, what is useful for us to, to notice is that the civil rights movement starts out where most Americans are very much in advocacy of opportunity solutions to the problem of poverty. But ultimately, uh, militancy, particularly in the black power phase, is going to take the movement all the way to demands for uh, uh, guaranteed income. So it's it's kind of tracing the trajectory that the the larger policy landscape is also going to go through. So 
Our contemporary picture of the civil rights movement, 1955 to 1965, uh, de-emphasizes its demands for economic integration. But in its origins, the movement was a demand for African-American access to American opportunity. This demand envisioned a restructuring of American society and economy to enable that access. It was both a more ambitious and a more realistic goal than that of material equality obtained through income redistribution policies. You can start with the March on Washington. The March on Washington, in fact, was a march for jobs and freedom. That was what the demand was. The uh, key organizers of the march were uh, Bayard Rustin on the left here and A. Philip Randolph, the uh, labor organizer, um, the storied labor organizer. Um, they were pushing for full economic assimilation of the African-American community by way of effective expansions of economic opportunity. At this time, they were working to, uh, Randolph and Rustin were working to develop a freedom budget um, that would capture the, uh, their ideas for restructuring the American economy. Uh, the freedom budget was first proposed by them in late 1965, and it was submitted to the Johnson administration and to the public in October 1966. The aim of the budget was to rework the, the uh, federal uh, government funding uh, to create equity through economic participation. It envisioned a federal budget restructured to guarantee a job for everyone ready and willing to work at a living wage, which lifted all workers out of poverty. So this is something of a starting position in the uh, African-American social movement that was putting pressure on policy deliberations in Washington. Um, a corollary in this moment uh, was the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, which was the youth, um, the youth branch of the civil rights movement. And it is within this branch of the civil rights movement that we can, uh, that this shift that I'm talking about away from the uh, lobbying for opportunity toward the more militant claim for guaranteed income, it's easier to see, it's easy to see uh, within the changes within SNCC. This is uh, the, the picture here. This is Julian Bond, uh, an early uh, SNCC uh, chairman with the uh, SNCC logo. SNCC is uh, founded in 1960. It is founded as an integrated movement, uh, an integrated youth organization uh, focused on tackling nationwide the problem of discrimination, anti-black discrimination. This, uh, by 1966... Uh, this movement, like the rest of America, is experiencing a transition. First of all, uh, black leadership within SNCC reached the conclusion that from here on out, the SNCC effort had to be led and largely um, implemented by African-American people. It, in effect, asked uh, white people in the movement to leave the organization. Its counsel to those people was, if you are, as, as we see you are, committed to this movement, the place that you can be of most help is in working in white communities that enforce 
racial discrimination. Go back to those communities where you came from and make change there. We need to run this ourselves. In this moment, uh, new leadership is appointed at, is elected at SNCC. Um, Stokely Carmichael, seen here with uh, Dr. King. Uh, Carmichael was a um, uh, deeply invested supporter of Martin King, but he, as a as a young man, uh, a gener- fifteen years younger than King, was beginning to feel strongly that the kinds of um, nonviolent tactics King was willing to support were inadequate to the new challenges. This was underscored by uh, failures uh, of uh, King's initiatives. For example, in 1966, the Chicago Freedom Program, King and uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference went to Chicago, determined to open up segregated housing in Chicago and was squashed flat by Daley. Uh, King had no real understanding of what he was coming up against in challenging a northern urban machine. He also didn't understand the depth of anti-black feeling in Chicago's ethnic neighborhoods. He, he was quoted as saying, people in the South should come to Chicago to learn how to hate. Um, in that environment, uh, Stokely Carmichael uh, takes over at SNCC and also, uh, in 1966, first puts forward the slogan, Black Power. This is during the march against fear in Mississippi in June of 1966. Um, King and Carmichael are both at that march. King is struggling mightily to try to keep the march peaceful, to continue on on a nonviolent path. And Carmichael is increasingly saying, this, we, we have been taxed beyond our limit. Um, one evening, he's thrown in jail for the, the 30th time. Uh, he comes out of jail that evening, and he's, he, he tries out on uh, the crowd, the, the marchers the next day, what do we want? Black power. He's not sure, and King isn't sure how the participants are going to respond, but the chant is echoed back. What do we want? Black power, black power, black power. Um, this is uh, Carmichael on that, on that trip. This is then underscored, uh, and people's, uh, the anxiety of Americans inside and outside the black community is increased by this then series of long, hot summers, which is playing along with this. Um, the long, hot summer put on display the increased militancy in the black community and in American society at large. Um, these were, uh, were summers of uh, uprising and violence in the cities uh, in the, each of the years 1964 through 1968. These started with violence in New York City uh, prior, directly prior to the 1964 convention that um, nominated Johnson for his full term uh, in the wake of a July uh, killing, police killing in New York City and included the August 1965 explosion in the Watts neighborhood uh, which occurred days after, five days after the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which, of course, left people despairing. Uh, people felt that they had moved mountains to get the Voting Rights Act passed, and what was the payoff? The payoff was this further uh, terrible destruction in Los Angeles. 
and continued through uprisings in Newark and in Detroit in July of 1967 to the violence and destruction in cities across the nation following King's assassination in April of 1968. (coughs) Some Americans and legislators responded to this increasing militancy and rising violence by challenging the movement's legitimacy. Others responded to movement demands with increased urgency. In either case, this phase of the black freedom struggle succeeded in capturing the attention of political leaders and policymakers who listened when movement spokesmen began to make the case for poor people's, or at least poor black people's, claim to a guaranteed income. Now, I want to uh, quickly look at how this rising recognition of race as an issue was beginning to reshape the policy discourse around poverty policy. So again, um, I've got a couple of particular speakers that I want to present to you. The first is uh, Oscar Lewis. Oscar Lewis was the, he was a New Yorker. He was the son of a rabbi. Um, He started out uh, in, in history, got bored, and became an anthropologist, and then uh, made um, a significant set of statements with his work on Latin American families, uh, Puerto Rican families in this case, uh, in the United States. The uh, Lewis's thesis was that uh, poor people were trapped in, quote, a culture of poverty that was both an adaptation and a reaction to their marginal position in a class-stratified, highly individualistic capitalist society. It's a culture of poverty. And uh, Lewis wrote a series of books in which he uh, attempted to trace the impacts of this culture of poverty on uh, American people living in poverty. And of course, you can see where this is headed. It is, um, it retains the idea that, that poverty may be systemic but it is now perhaps putting the problem of poverty beyond the reach of policy interventions. It's saying this is not a problem with opportunity structures. This is a deeper issue, and it goes to the enculturation of people. In a similar vein, and even more controversially, uh, was the Moynihan Report. Uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan uh, was, uh, in these uh, years, an assistant secretary in the Department of Labor, He prepared uh, a report, an internal report, uh, The Negro Family, The Case for National Action. Uh, It became public in autumn of 1965, and it raised a furor. The report was challenged, uh, the report challenged the then conventional wisdom that economic conditions were the prime element shaping the lives of the poor, and argued instead, kind of parallel to Lewis, that the conditions in black ghettos were, in important part, a function of failed family structure, specifically the fatherless matriarchal family, whose causes, the causes of which that family structure traced back to slavery, Jim Crow, and ongoing race discrimination. As Moynihan interpreted his data, they showed that, quote, the gap between the Negro and most other groups in American society is widening. As evidence, for example, in the out-of-wedlock birth rate, which in 1965 was 25% in the African-American community and 3.1% among white families. From this and other uh, data, 
Moynihan concluded that the cause of troubling conditions in African-American communities lay not so much in economic conditions as in family life, which in black ghetto communities constituted, and here is the the famous and famously um, inflammatory and controversial statement, um, constituted, quote, a tangle of pathology capable of perpetuating itself without assistance from the white world. At the heart of... At the heart of the deterioration of the fabric of Negro society is the deterioration of the Negro family. It is the fundamental source of the weakness of the Negro community at the present time. This raised an outcry. Uh, Contemporary critics accused Moynihan of blaming the victim, of failing to delve adequately into the sources of the dysfunction that he identified. This report influenced war on poverty planning. The report cast doubt on the efficacy of existing welfare programs. Moynihan, Moynihan, in fact, found that increasing increases in welfare spending tracked with increases in African-American community disintegration. Moynihan argued to Johnson that without access to jobs and the means to contribute meaningful support to a family, black men would become systematically alienated from their roles as husbands and fathers. But the report raised doubts as to whether, given the embeddedness of the dysfunction that Moynihan asserted, efforts to create new access to opportunity would be sufficient. So it's recognizing that we have a systemic problem here. It's sticking with a ladders of opportunity response. But it's beginning to say we may be dealing with something bigger here than we had envisioned and we may not have the tools that we need to deal with it. Let's look at the women's end of this. This was uh, women's rights, the the, uh, the growing um, activism among women that would ultimately, uh, that that we know as as, uh, uh, second wave feminism, is rising uh, at this time. And, and became another stream of social activism feeding uh, into the debate on poverty uh, policy. Women were, in fact, the stepchildren of the Great Society family. Legislators on the House floor gladly stepped up to vote in favor of provisions of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that outlawed discrimination on the basis of race. But they guffawed out loud uh, when they were asked to do the same for discrimination on the basis of sex. This, the, the provision did pass. It was inserted by this guy, um, uh, Representative uh, Judge uh, Smith of Virginia. Uh, Judge Smith was a famous, committed segregationist. It's unclear whether he inserted the, the, uh, the clause about discrimination uh, on the basis of sex because he, as a poison pill, hoping that he would tank the entire bill if he inserted it, or if he included it because he was, in fact, and had a record as a supporter of women's rights. In any case, uh, the, the provision did pass, but um, only, on the, only by a hair. Um, the, this treatment of women, women's concerns continued. The Equal Opportun- Employment Opportunity Commission created by the 1964 Act, uh, that commission simply declined in its early years to pursue claims of discrimination based on sex. Just wouldn't pursue them. The theory was that these were less important than those based on race. This dereliction of duty led directly to the formation of the National Organization for Women, which during the late 60s was especially prominent in seeing to it that women's claims would be included in the public and policy conversations. 
So with, with that background, a large uh, women's movement is in the offing. But we're particularly interested in the welfare rights movement, which also evolved at this time. Poverty policy battles often centered on women, whether as the problematic matriarchs of the Monaghan Report, Moynihan Report, or as the recipients of AFDC aid. Uh, again, the, the AFDC costs were rising uh, rapidly uh, during these years. The National Welfare Rights Organization was formed in 1967, drawing together multiple grassroots groups that had proliferated in the cities around the nation to demand improvements to the American poor relief system. Representative of this system was Johnny Tillman. Tillman was an activist, an organizer, and a welfare mother, uh, as she described herself. I'm a woman. I'm a black woman. I'm a poor woman. I'm a fat woman. I'm a middle-aged woman. And I'm on welfare. In this country, if you are any one of those things, poor, black, fat, female, middle-aged, on welfare, you count less as a human being. If you are all those things, you don't count at all, except as a, st- as a statistic. I am a statistic. I am 45 years old. I have raised six children. She described the dilemma women like her faced. Quote, nobody denies, least of all poor women, that there is dignity and satisfaction in being able to support your kids through honest labor. We wish we could do it. The problem is that our country's economic policies deny the dignity and satisfaction of self-sufficiency to millions of people, the millions who suffer every day in underpaid, dirty jobs and still don't have enough to survive. Tillman had a solution to the poverty problem to propose, which was this. If I were president, I would solve this so-called welfare crisis in a minute and go a long way toward liberating every woman. I'd just issue a proclamation that women's work is real work. In other words, I'd start paying women a living wage for doing the work we are already doing uh, uh, in child raising and housekeeping. And the welfare crisis would be over just like that. But recognizing the radicalism of that proposal, in in effect the overthrow of patriarchy, Tillman had a more practicable proposal to offer. We, meaning the National Welfare Rights Organization, put together our own welfare plan called Guaranteed Adequate Income, which would eliminate sexism from welfare. There would be no categories, men, women, children, single, married, kids, no kids, just poor people who need aid. You'd get paid according to need and family size only. A $6,500 payment for a family of four which is the Department of Labor's estimate of what is adequate. So here is this voice, here, here is this very strong set of voices now coming out of both the black community, from the women's community, welfare rights community, saying to policymakers, here's what, we're, we, we, we can't wait on your opportunity ladders, Here, here's what we want you to do. And they had backup. This is uh, Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward. Um, who came forward with a strategy to make all this happen. 
Just as Tillman and the NWRO were coming forward with this guaranteed income proposal, Columbia University's Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward were developing an action strategy to force its implementation on the federal government. They presented their strategy in an essay in a May 1966 issue of The Nation. The essay was called The Weight of the Poor, A Strategy to End Poverty. How can we use the weight of the poor to leverage policy change? The stated aim of the strategy was, quote, to wipe out poverty by establishing a guaranteed annual income. How? 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 At that time, uh, Cloward and Piven observed, many people eligible to receive AFDC benefits were not registered for the program. The Cloward-Piven plan was to organize to push registration toward 100% of those eligible. Doing so, they theorized, would produce bureaucratic disruption, quote, quote, bureaucratic disruption in welfare agencies and fiscal disruption in local and state governments. A national democratic administration would be constrained to advance a federal solution to poverty that would override local welfare failures, local class and race conflicts, and local revenue dilemmas. Cloward and Piven recognized, however, that such an aim would be, quote, questioned by some, because the ideal of individual social and economic mobility has such deep roots that even activists seem reluctant to call for national programs to eliminate poverty by the outright redistribution of income. So, there we have a framework created by the administration uh, early in the 60s moment that looks toward creation of opportunity, restructuring of the economy. As the decade rolls forward, we have the emergence of these ever more effective, ever more uh, militant social movements that are pushing in a, uh, who, who, just like legislators on the Hill, have become impatient with what the administration has, is asking people to do and are pushing for a far more radical solution in the form of guaranteed income. Uh, we do move toward entitlement thinking. This ultimately undermines the program. And in fact, a, a series of factors come together to undermine the program. The continuation of the Johnson plan required a continuing support from Congress for expenses that necessarily were going to get larger going forward. It's one thing to pilot a program like the Community Action Program, but as planning continued, each of the Community Action Plans were going to be calling on greater and greater federal resources. It was essential to keep the Democratic coalition together around support for this act. This began to fall apart. Number one, as mentioned earlier, there was the problem of the weakness of initial results. Uh, welfare costs are not going down. They're getting higher. We don't see an abatement to poverty in, uh, in American cities. We see, in fact, increased militants, increased disruption, increased chaos. It doesn't seem to be working. Explain to us how we sell this to the folks back home. A second consideration and a, a, a strictly, a starkly limiting factor was the fact of Vietnam. And this was problematic in more ways than one. There was budget pressure uh, due to the war, 
uh, it became clear by 1966 that although uh, Johnson had come out swinging, swearing uh, that in his view anyway, the American economy was robust enough that it could provide for both guns and butter and do it simultaneously. By 1966, it's clear that that's not the case. And it is clear that to prevent risk of significant inflation, what Johnson really ought to be doing is imposing a new, uh, a new set of taxes. He's, he's just uh, had this big success passing the 1964 Revenue Act. He does not want to go back on that. And he's not sure that he has the support in Congress to do that. So what does this mean? It means that he's got to chisel down support for great society programming. The effect of that is to leave legislators who had supported him, particularly those further to the left, particularly those who had been committed to the great society vision, feeling betrayed. We got this program started, and now you're cutting us off at the knees. How am I supposed to talk to the people in my community about this? Um, social, the, the result was those legislators were looking for a different approach. Social movement advocacy, uh, as just discussed, played a part. Here said uh, black power militants and welfare rights militants, here is another possibility. How about this? The one that you're using is not working. Uh, violence uh, in the later 60s is reaching what contemporaries perceive as a crisis point. Legislators are anxious to take steps that will immediately quiet the situation. Maybe guaranteed income is not such a terrible idea. Maybe, in fact, guaranteed income, given the complexity of the problem that we're now recognizing, maybe guaranteed income is the only thing that we can do. This is exacerbated by um, pushback, uh, particularly among the working class. Um, working class people, uh, in particular, um, expressed hostility to the idea of what they perceived to be handouts to people who were not pulling their own weight. And this, too, created political problems for people in Congress. How do we balance this? A deciding factor is the role of race. And this is because the claims of entitlement were particularly telling in the case of the black freedom struggle. As the demands of African-American leadership grew more strident, legislators found it harder to pursue a program of opportunity which conditioned participation on demands that the participants fulfill work and family responsibilities. If you, if you have a claim that we deem valid against society, if you say, I suffer the costs of discrimination, then can we really make as a predicate of aiding you a set of work requirements, or are we just really obligated to, to write you a check? Policymakers turned instead to evaluation of the claims of entitlement to a guaranteed income, and this included even Lyndon Johnson. In his June 1965 Howard University commencement address, Johnson himself recognized the weight of African-American claims. Recognizing the tremendous progress made during his administration toward defeat of de jure segregation and national freedom, Johnson recognized, quote, freedom is not enough. You do not wipe away the scars of centuries by saying, now you are free to go where you want and do as you desire and choose the leaders you please. 
You do not take a person who, for years, has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bring him up to the starting line of a race, and then say, you are free to compete with all the others, and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. Thus, Johnson told Howard University graduates, the struggle would now enter a new phase in which the nation must seek, quote, not just legal equity, but human ability, not just equality as a right and a theory, but equality as a fact and equality as a result. In other words, we are moving away from opportunity toward entitlement, toward outcome. All right, so let's just uh, take a glimpse ahead and ask what this moment of policy experience uh, under the Johnson administration meant for policy going forward. Um, this, uh, this idea of guaranteed income was actually going to have its uh, real moment uh, in the sun un under the uh, presidency of Richard Nixon. Uh, Nixon, in 1969, submitted to Congress the Family Assistance Plan. This plan, in fact, had been designed by uh, Patrick Moynihan, uh, seen here. Uh, it would have provided a, a living wage to all American families, the, and it would have done away with, it would have replaced AFDC, and by replacing AFDC, it would have done away with invidiously singling out welfare mothers and other of the unworthy poor. The Family Assistance Plan was in fact defeated finally in 1972 by a Democratic Congress. This is something that Ted Kennedy, among others, rude uh, ever after. Uh, but that the, the, uh, the idea of a guaranteed income did fail, and we'll have more to say about that next week. The subsequent uh, major policy developments, 1980s and the cuts during the Reagan administration to, all, uh, to a range of social uh, provision policies, followed in 1969 by the act that created the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, or the TANF program. This is under President Clinton, who promised to end welfare as we know it. Both of these moves, under Reagan, under Clinton, attacked the idea, moved, moved further away from the idea of the possibility of a legitimate uh, guaranteed income. So at the end of the 20th century, um, folding in Johnson, Nixon, Reagan, Clinton. There were uh, a number of paths of possible reform. And I think as we've been seeing throughout the, our work uh, in this material, all of these remain live options. And, and the question for us is, um, what is the balance among them? What are, what are the new arguments that come forward to give better support to some uh, beyond others? Um, by the end of the 20th century, Americans had considered, even experimented, with several paths toward poor relief and improved quality of life for all Americans. Work relief, the idea that uh, in a society that so valued work, I'll find it. 
that in a society that so valued work, a job should be available to all who are willing to work. And if need be, in the last resort, it should, that job should be provided by the national government. But as we have seen, uh, Roosevelt's New Deal program for Social Security led with a plan for public works and full employment. The idea was picked up by his successor, Harry Truman, who made an effort to pass a full employment bill in 1945. Roosevelt's initiative was diverted by the war effort and Truman's bill, which would have committed the federal government to providing work to all Americans, was passed only in a watered-down version in 1946. We have toyed with the idea of a, a government operation to provide work in a society dedicated to work, again, as the, the employer of last resort. Um, we've toyed with that. We haven't followed through. Second possibility is the Johnson possibility that we've just explored of opportunity restructuring. Um, this is an effort to, this is a, a commitment to uh, the American economy, a faith in the robustness and the capability of the American economy, and a commitment to retooling it so that it works for all. In that respect, this is a tremendously hopeful uh, approach to uh, poverty policy. A third possibility, one uh, not um, adequately explored even during the New Deal, or, although explored there more than elsewhere, is the idea of attacking poverty by providing a, a stronger baseline of public services. Uh, if housing is uh, affordable and healthful, if schools, public schools are good, if there are access to things like libraries and job training and God knows healthcare, uh, this changes what the needs of each private household are. Why not approach this that way? Uh, we, we also nibble on that. We do nibble on that approach. The problem with that approach, of course, as you probably pick up, is that it begins to sound like socialism, which is a problem for Americans. And then finally... Uh, well, in this list, uh, the idea of income guarantees. How about that? The plus of this approach is that it recognizes the justice of the claim uh, of all members of a society to share to some reasonable degree in its resources and benefits. But by forestalling efforts to improve underlying economic and social systems to assist independent access to opportunity by citizens, this approach risks a degree of social stagnation and the creation of a permanent underclass of citizens, able-bodied but pensioned off. So what this means, all of these are uh, policy approaches active on the table. Uh, policymakers are going to continue to shuffle among them, juggle among them, argue uh, with one another about them as we, the public, will. And uh, my bottom line, anyway, is that we as Americans are permanently stuck in this struggle. It's a struggle for policy that can harmonize our self-identity as a people committed both to work, self-sufficiency and independence, and also to political equality among citizens. And that's all I have to say at the present time. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Lectures in History podcast. If you're interested in hearing more history, check out Season 2 of the Presidential Recordings podcast. The second season focuses on taped conversations between President Richard Nixon on topics ranging from the Watergate scandal to his nominees for the Supreme Court. The Presidential Recordings Podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.